Today's episode of Does Not Compute is brought to you by Linode. Eight data centers around the world, one gigabyte servers for just $5 a month, and great add-on services are just a few of the things that make Linode an awesome host for your virtualized servers. Linode has ultra-competitive pricing. In fact, the RAM offerings across the board are double what most competitors offer at the same price point. Two gigabyte servers for only $10 a month and high memory servers starting at 16 gigabytes for just $60 a month. Everything runs on real server-grade hardware, native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. Their add-on services also help make DevOps a bit less chaotic. Automated backups give you peace of mind, node balancers make it easy to scale, and Longview helps you keep track of server metrics with no hassle. Of course, all Linode servers are billed hourly with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services. Best of all, Linode has a special offer for DNC listeners. If you head to linode.com slash doesnotcompute and use the promo code doesnotcompute2017 when you sign up, they'll give you $20 in account credit to get started. That's up to four free months of your own one gigabyte server. Make sure to check out linode.com slash doesnotcompute today. So you, what have you uh, been up to for the last week, Sean? I feel like we haven't really talked lately. Thinking about retirement, retiring from the game. <laughs> Time to get out, huh? No, I no. I've just been really tired. That's all. I haven't been sleeping enough. It's my own fault. But uh, the season, the season started changing, so it's getting warmer. Okay, so it was super weird. It was a little bit warm, and then it dumped like six inches of snow, and then it melted the next day, and then now it's been. Like in the mid sixties, that is pretty weird. Yeah, so it's been harder to work in the afternoons because it gets warmer, and I want to go outside, and so I've been walking more, um, which is has been nice. So eh, that's why I've been thinking about it. retiring. I just want to be outside all the time. The snow is gone. I forgot what living through a winter was like, Paul. Yeah, it's been like seventy degrees for the last forever here. Rained a, a lot. For a few weeks, but that's about it. Not here. It's been different. But I still haven't gone outside. <laughs> I got stuff to do. I got so many things. So many things. I um uh as of a recording tomorrow, the people that will hear this, it's not going to be tomorrow when you're hearing this, but it's today's tomorrow, if that makes any sense. Uh there are going to be many thousand emails being sent from my little server on the internet. For for Design Collective? Is this a big mm-hmm. sale or something that's going on? Uh, so they approved, I don't know how, they just were clicking buttons in the admin panel. They approved a bunch of stores, <laughs> which is fine. That's what I made it for. I wanted them to do it without having to me have to do things. But they approved a bunch of stores and we had kind of like a soft launch or having a soft launch. And what's really interesting was I noticed that um, the, the site looked one way with lots of my test data and it looks totally different with non-test data. And it kind of like, it makes sense when you say that, but I noticed that uh, both of my coworkers look at things very differently now that the data is real. So there's been lots of like uh, UI kind of tweaks. Yeah, that that's something that I always struggle with, especially when, when you're getting designs from somebody. A lot of times the designs will be really nice for this perfect case that exists in the design, but that just isn't how things line up in real world data. And I'm noticing that I'm running into this myself now that I'm having to do a lot more kind of design type work and UX stuff where it's like I'm, I've designed something that works really well with my dev data, but it doesn't always fully line up with how 
what the production data is like. I mean, it's it's tough. It's really it's really difficult to do that well for every scenario, especially when you're building out new features where there might not even necessarily be real data to work with yet. Right. I think one of the biggest uh, pieces that we noticed needed a good amount of work was in how the search results are surfaced. And I mean, with test data, you kind of generate data that it's almost too perfect in a sense, or it's too homogenous, I guess. So we noticed that um, that needed a lot of love. So previously, uh, I've, I've worked with SearchKick before in a bunch of different projects, or SearchKick, I've worked with Elasticsearch uh, a bunch before in a bunch of different projects. And I've typically always used the search kick gem or the, and this time I was using the Chewy gem, um, which kind of, they just kind of wraps uh, Elasticsearch's functionality and, and they provide lots of conveniences for it's you. It's like a DSL um, around and, oh, the Elasticsearch API, right? Yeah. They just give you, they just give you a DSL to work with among other things. And I noticed that like I, I started searching uh, their issues, just kind of looking to see how people were doing different things or how people were dealing with certain situations they were running into. And I started noticing a lot of the answers where uh, this hasn't, this feature isn't supported yet by this gem or this, this way of writing this query isn't supported yet or this newer version of Elasticsearch isn't supported yet. And that kind of made me feel uneasy because... Yeah, they they do a lot of convenient things for you. Um, a lot of, like, namely around handling re-indexing of related items automatically for you, so you don't have to make sure to write all of your callbacks and things like that. Um, but it, it's you know the trade-off is that you're kind of locked in to how the maintainers of these these packages, these gems, want to do things, and to a larger scope, you're related. You're limited to how their employers you know, how they set up their businesses. Um, so what I ended up doing was uh, moving just closer to the bare metal and I'm using the uh, Elasticsearch Ruby or Elasticsearch Rails gem. And you have to do a lot more things by hand, but now I'm not limited just DSL. So um, if you're not familiar with Elasticsearch, you just, it basically is a, it's a just an index uh, of you, whatever you put in it. And then you send the server JSON payloads and then it sends you back results. So it's a way for doing like faceted, faceted searching and stuff. Um, kind of the funny thing about that to me is that you're you're saying like we're, we're talking about how these gems provide a DSL, but realistically, you're still using DSL. It's just directly the Elasticsearch interface. Yeah, I'm using I'm using Elasticsearch interface, so I'm not going through a translator, so to speak. So really, I just have a few different classes. I have well, the 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 class I have for the product search is Elastic Product Search. And the interface for that is you, you know, in the search controller, I just do elastic uh, product search dot new, and then I pass in params and then call dot search and it gets results. It returns results. And then inside of there, it's just a bunch of methods that construct uh, hashes that get serialized to JSON. So I guess I'm like one step away from writing just pure JSON requests for this, but it's been really nice because uh, in the past, I've kind of relied on these other gems to do work for me. So I didn't really understand what was going on. And again, this kind of comes back to the theme that we keep we keep talking about. But you know, once I removed that translator from the process, I'm, I'm actually able to understand the underlying technology, the underlying language and actually solve the problems that I'm trying to solve and not just kind of like, oh, I think this is going to work. And then having to make lots of passes of, I think this is going to work. Right. That's very similar actually to kind of my experience with Webpack. And when I was initially trying to use Webpack, I just, I just struggled and struggled and struggled with it and couldn't get it. And it was just causing me so much grief, but that was because I was actually trying to use these things 
that were a translation layer. Like it's like here, here's a here's a starter pack, right? And that for me, for that particular setup for using Webpack was just the worst possible way to learn. Stripping it away to the quote unquote bare metal, although Webpack is the farthest thing from bare metal you can possibly have. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Stripping right. it down to the like the actual thing I was trying to learn and just learning it step by step from the beginning instead of using something that just, you know, hides the actual complexity of it going in and understanding the complexity and learning the complexity and embracing it actually made it so much easier for me to pick up. Yeah. And I w- I've always kind of been intimidated by Elasticsearch itself again, because I've always used higher level DSLs for it. And now that I'm getting into it, it's really not that bad. Uh, the hardest thing about it is just learning the API, which is pretty much the hardest thing about any using any tool, you know, learning the different uh, options you have available. And then this, the second thing that the second hardest thing is, making sure that I'm stringing together valid JSON, which really isn't that hard to be honest. So, you know, it's kind of cool because now I have a deeper understanding, like a, a deeper working knowledge of a pretty big part of my application. And that enables me to, I think, solve the problems that we're facing, you know, better, but more, more concretely, again, there's just less guesswork there. So it feels pretty good. So a bit earlier, you mentioned that you're sending out a bunch of emails. You said tomorrow, right? As of as of the date we're recording, oh my gosh, that's always so stressful. <laughs> I right before a bunch of emails get sent out for whatever reason, I just get so stressed, man. You can't take them back every time. You can't. T- you yeah, can't they're take- just they're out there in yeah. the world. You can't do it. You can't take them back. In all of those, all those email clients. Oh my goodness, so many email clients. Do you have any any particular things you've been doing to uh, to test those emails? Uh, just sending them. So I have a bunch of, over the years, I've collected different email accounts for different services and I just use those. Um, also to build the actual emails, I'm using MJML and, uh, that seems to work pretty okay across the board. You know, I'm not looking for things to be perfect. Uh, I just need them to be pretty okay. Not terrible, basically. Legible and clickable, right? I'm, yeah, I'm looking for not terrible. That's, (laughs) yeah, that's what I'm shooting for. So you were talking about MJML to me like last week or something, I think. And I thought you were having a bunch of issues with it. Were yeah. you able to get that figured out? I was complaining about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for now I have, yes. So figuring the problem, figuring out the problem was actually less work than um, doing things from scratch. <laughs> so that's what I opted to do. Uh, what did I end up doing? I think, I think I nuked, I nuked my node modules and then reinstalled everything. And then on Heroku as well, I made sure that the node cache was off. And then I I must have like tapped my shoes together three times or something. I can't remember what, but it started working. So basically, okay. So basically MJML, um, you, it's kind of like a DSL for writing emails. Basically you just use a uh, little components. Uh, and so you might have like MJ button or MJ header, or MJ image or something. And so you can base, it's kind of like working with a view template or react component or view component where you have a component and then you pass in uh, props. And then that gets compiled into uh, a bunch of tables and stuff on the other side. Um, so basically, you can style up these components and then put them into partials. And so for your Rails emails, you essentially just start dropping in partials of MJL, MJML components, and you don't actually have to write any of the HTML yourself. Uh, the trade-off is that they need to be compiled via Node. So um, that's kind of what was going wrong was something on Heroku 
was happening where um, when it would try to compile the email, the, the content would just be blank. And I think it, uh, I remember now, it was actually a version a version mismatch. So when I did a fresh yarn install um, from, ch- after switching from NPM, I did a fresh yarn install and it picked up a different version or something. And that's what was going on. Uh, MJMLs added a, um, a linter and it was, it was complaining about something I had going on and that's what was breaking the compilation. Oh, weird. Okay. Man, I uh, have we talked about yarn on the show at all? I don't think we have. I don't think so. Man, I, I am. I don't have a, a ton interesting to say about it, but I I would just highly recommend checking it out if if folks haven't done that yet. Um, it's it's a pretty easy switch to make, and having that that just peace of mind about the versioning of your packages is awesome. Um, cache is great too, but the versioning for me is is the big thing because I was also just running into random issues like that where i'd have something and deploy it and you know some dependency of some dependency of some dependency did a a patch Mm. update that broke something some weird case or whatever and that that's something that just kind of seemed to be happening pretty often i mean i I guess a lot of that is because i'm using like a a lot of pretty pretty bleeding edge stuff like nuxt and and that sort of thing and so it's, it's it's expected but having everything actually locked in now, I, I just feel so much better about that. And I haven't had any issues with it yet. So that's been been really helpful for me. Yeah, I haven't really had any issues either that I can that I can think of besides that one. And that was really just because I was switching over t- from NPM to, to Yarn. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was kind of frustrating figuring that out. And then I had to mess around with like pinning different versions and stuff, but I got it working for now. So uh, I'm not going to touch it. Not touching it, uh, and thankfully with Yarn, it's not going to change because it's in a lock file uh, with an absolute version specified. So, but yeah, it's been pretty okay. I mean, again, writing emails really sucks. Uh, testing them in different clients really sucks. So, if you can find something like MJML and you can make it work for your for yourself, it, it's pretty pretty okay. And my other option was, you know, using Mailchimp to design the emails and just exporting the HTML, but then you still have to clean up that HTML and work around it. So that's why I opted for MJMLs because you don't have to do that at all. You just use what look like viewer react components and call it a day for those emails. Yeah. I usually just use MailChimp templates or just some templates from somewhere just because I know like even starting with a base, it it can be more of a pain because you have to strip out all the stuff you don't care about and change the things that you, you don't like. But like for me, just having a little bit, I guess, again, peace of mind that this was tested by more people than just me, right? And I can throw it in, I yeah. can throw it in Litmus or, or any of the email testing services. I can send it to all my different accounts over and over. But the reality of it is people are using a lot of clients and content changes stuff in unexpected ways. And that's also kind of going back to the uh, the dev content versus your production content again. It's just like there there's so many things that can go wrong depending on what the con- actual real-world contents of that email are, I'd rather just use something where I know it's been tested by a lot of people and a lot of clients. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of tough, too, because the emails that are that are, are being tested a lot are specifically for, like, sales and things where the content changes every single email. So every email that gets sent out um, could potentially have different content, you know, based off of has a product sold out since the last email was sent or something like that because uh, the emails list like products that are almost sold out and at the bottom it has a grid of products that have sold out to kind of create a sense of urgency for people I suppose and so yeah it's there's so many different variables in those so it feels good to know that other people have tested that stuff and 
it, like it's kind of a trade-off like finding you know you you don't obviously want to build your entire application with software that other people wrote because number one you're not necessarily familiar with all of it and number two you're kind of trusting that everything was done well <laughs> and conversely you don't necessarily want to have to write everything yourself because it just takes longer and I think that emails, like if you can find something that works well, it's 100% worth the trade-off. Oh, emails. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just thinking about that. I, it's kind of funny um, where like, I think it was like last week or something. So I knew that, that um, I was going to be writing some more tests for emails. You know, I was going to be generating lots more data and I have a staging server and all that stuff. And so I'm totally paranoid about accidentally sending emails out. Uh, I was on Stackflow, I think Stack Overflow, I think it was, and someone was someone was talking about how um, one of their devs was in a test environment, and they ran some method, and it sent out real emails to real customers, and and so I stopped what I was doing, and um, I have most of my notification stuff kind of abstracted away, and so basically anytime there's a notification email that gets sent out, I just I just uh, bail out of it unless we're in the production environment, just to be safe. <laughs> Just to be extra safe. Yeah, um, I've seen a, a pattern before where people just have an environment variable that's like email address override or something like that. And if that environment variable is present, they'll just catch all the emails and send them all to that environment variable with mm. like a, in that's the smart. subject line what the original address was that it was going to be sent to. Um, I think that's a pretty pretty clever and simple solution for that. I'm going to steal that idea. Um, because yeah, I mean, cause you like in your tests, you can obviously test to make, you know, see if a method was called and you can know that the email would have been sent because I don't, you really don't have to test active mailer or anything like that. Um, so I think I'm going to probably steal that idea, but it just makes you feel better, especially like there's some Twilio stuff happening and, you know, God forbid, even like emails are one thing, but you just do not want to text somebody because <laughs> oh I feel like that's a whole nother level of like violating someone's personal space right right i mean they could be charged for that <laughs> right yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so yeah i was i've been paranoid and i just kind of like make sure that no emails will get sent unless we're on production and even okay so like even on this on the sales for the stores i have an option or added a thing where they have to kind of double opt-in before the sale will be launched so they have to like pick a start and date and time and they have to, you know, set the duration for the sale. And then they also have to check a box and there's a bunch of verbiage, you know, next to the box saying, I acknowledge that I've selected the time and date and that when um, this box is checked and the time and date passed, all of my contacts will be notified because they're, the, con they're, the source contacts are the, the people that have shopped with them before. So they're basically just saying like, hey, I absolutely know that a sale is going to happen and people will be notified. <laughs> Because uh, I was just paranoid, like someone's gonna come through onboarding and they're gonna they're gonna create a sale and totally forget about it. Sure. You know? Yeah, it's always good to add that that little bit of confirmation for anything that's a I don't know if hazardous is quite right, but it's kind of right. Any hazardous action. Yeah. So I guess that's been my week, Paul. I've been like, I'll be I'll be sitting around drinking coffee, and then I'll I'll have a paranoid moment, and then I'll put my coffee down and I'll go over to the computer and. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just bail, bail on code if it's not production. What else did I do? Oh, I started. I picked up Docker again. That's a thing. What do you uh, What are you playing with Docker for? Um, Elasticsearch. So uh, there's a whole thing where I noticed that the ES provider I was using on Heroku was using version 2.33. The current version is 5.3. Oh my! And so I sent him a nice little message saying, "Hey, let's uh, take care of this." And um, so. 
yeah, I could I could use brew services to um, install you know multiple versions of ES, but it was kind of a pain having to like brew switch and making sure things were linked up properly. Like when I would switch projects, uh, because I want essentially I want my development environment to as closely match my production environment as I can, especially with you know so, like uh, version numbers for for uh, ops. Well, things. I mean, three major versions. That's that's a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, I've never been good with Docker on the command line. Uh, so I downloaded Kite. I think it's called Kitematic. That's their their like uh, GUI for managing Docker services. It makes it pretty easy. So yeah, now when I need a specific version, I can just pull that you know down to the patch number for that software, turn it on, and then I just update an environment variable in my my Rails app, and I'm up and running with the proper version numbers. So that's what I did. Um, I downloaded or I pulled down two of the images, one that matched the current version, one that matched the new version. And then I would test things by swapping out the environment variable and restarting my app to make sure that my search my search queries weren't going to break. So yeah, I'm basically just moving all of my, my services over to individual Docker containers. I think next up will probably be Redis and uh, maybe Postgres after that, but we'll see. One thing at a time, one thing at a time. Yeah, that's something that I should definitely spend a bit more time learning. I, I Docker is so ubiquitous now; it's just everywhere, and everything is using it all the time. And I have very little experience with it. Yeah, you should check out. It's called. Let me look at it right now. Actually, it's called Kitematic. I think it comes with the Docker toolkit, Docker what, whatever they call their their. Uh, they I think it ships with an, with a version of Docker. So yeah. Anyway, check it out. It's called Kitematic, and then it's just a GUI. So if you need to install Redis, you just click New, click on Redis. And it allows you to manage the instance that way. So at a at a quick glance, you can see what all containers you have running, what versions are running. Um, but not only that, you can actually you know see all of like the environment variables and the ports that are configured. You can actually see where the volumes are. And that was the most confusing thing to me. I think when I first got into Docker um, was just kind of like learning about how it manages the actual data and where that data is stored and how you can link that to a physical location on your computer and bridge the two. Um, so yeah, Kitematic makes that pretty easy. You don't really have to worry about it much. Yeah, I'm just clicking through a few of the screenshots. This looks super interesting. I hadn't heard of this before. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty pretty cool. It um it just works, so to speak, or has at least for me anyway. So I better knock on my table real quick. But yeah, it's been it's been great. Nice. Well, maybe that'll be a bit of an excuse to play around with Docker, I suppose. Suppose. This episode of Does Not Compute was sponsored by Linode. Linode makes spinning up virtual servers super easy. Their plans start at just $5 a month for one gigabyte servers and 60 bucks a month for high memory servers, starting at 16 gigabytes. Every box runs on native SSD storage and Intel E5 processors across a 40 gigabit network. Check out Linode now at linode.com slash does not compute. When you sign up at that link using the promo code does not compute 2017, they'll give you $20 in account credit. Thanks Linode. screen.